0: This is Too Old for This Shit. Each week we dissect, discuss and critique the best and worst action movies from the 80s and 90s. You're listening to the podcast that puts critical thought into a mindless genre. My name's Antonio and I'm here with my co-host Josh. How are you doing out there? And uh, Josh grew up watching these films whereas I am seeing them for the first time. So we're trying to give them a fresh perspective. Uh, Josh is going to see how these films... Stand the test of time. So it doesn't matter if you watch these on VHS DVD or if you're streaming them on iTunes. We're going to bring a freshness to nostalgia. So this week's movie is... The Long Kiss Goodnight. Now I'm actually really excited to watch this film because when I was in primary school, I had a couple of mates who saw it and would not stop talking about this film. I think it was also because it was the first MA rated film they ever got to see. Right, but rated R in America. Right, yes, um, but yeah, I've always wanted to see it and just sort of haven't found the right opportunity. So I, uh, I'm very pumped to, uh, to be. God bless yourself. this podcast for giving you the chance to giving me watch gina davis (laughs) yeah well yeah no i'm actually keen to see gina davis in an action film role because has she done many roles like this cutthroat island which well people wish that she hadn't done yes (laughs) one of the most uh infamous hollywood bombs of all time so i'm trying to
1: remember the first time i saw this movie i'm gonna say i probably saw it on tape
0: sometime i actually don't have a clear memory of seeing this movie for the first time and the other thing I think worth pointing out about this film is that it's a team up with Rennie Harlan and Sean Black Sean Black Shane Black Shane Black (laughs) Sean's brother (laughs) yeah I don't know why I get that confused, <laughs> even though I'm a massive fan. Um, so uh, Shane Black writing it and, of course, Rennie Harlan directing. So all these years you've been writing letters to the Sean Black fl- fan club yeah. and you've been getting
1: it returned. You're like, why doesn't this guy appreciate my no, love? No,
0: nothing at all. So, yeah, fantastic writer and, obviously, Rennie Harlan, a somewhat prolific director of the 80s and 90s or more so than He 90s. was a player in the day. So uh, shall we get into it? Let's do it. Let's watch this movie when I'm thinking
1: I hope not because I'm thinking how much my balls hurt I don't think I want to meet any more of your old friends. We have no choice. We need some answers or we're gonna die. Okay, and we're back. Yes. The Long Kiss Goodnight. What a nice smooch. Yeah, (laughs) a very...
0: Oh, it wasn't that long. No, it was was actually of a decent length. I, um... The kiss or the movie? The movie. Oh, okay, sorry. Antonio and I were kissing, but during the movie... (laughs) We can talk about that at the end of the podcast. Um, This is the first film that we've seen with a female lead, I think. It is. Yeah, yeah. Gina Davis, an excellent actress does an amazing job in this film. That's actually probably my biggest takeaway is she was perfect for it and bloody nailed it. To think someone, yeah, she was able to handle both sides of that character really well. That mm. was that was one thing I really liked.
1: I really enjoyed it. It's a nice neo-noir. Uh, it's... Good
0: action sequences, the set pieces are all there. Moves along really quickly. The first 45 minutes, they get through a lot and you're kind of thankful that they do until it actually gets into the proper meat of the film where it's like, okay, we know who she is now, but what exactly is she sort of all tied up in and what's going on? Mm.
1: And Um, another kind of initial reaction I have is that the film, while it does have a three-act structure... There's almost a break in the middle. It's almost a two-act movie in the sense that there's the
0: pre-Charlie Baltimore and the post-Charlie Baltimore. Yeah, yeah there's a definite kind of pendulum swing there where the, it just totally changes because her character changes and the film making kind of reflects that.
1: So we should go through, the let's, let's do the plot. The Long Kiss Goodnight is the story of Sam Kane, a frumpy school who's had amnesia for eight years but starts to get her memory back when she's in a car accident. After a visit from a vengeful escaped convict in which she snaps his neck like a pencil, she teams up with private eye Mitch Hennessy to find her true identity.
0: Now it's revealed that she is actually Charlene Charlie Baltimore, a trained assassin who was supposed to be killed years ago as a relic of the Cold War by her CIA bosses. After nearly being drowned by her last target, her memory floods back and she transforms into being the kick-ass, hard-drinking, cynical killer of old. Now, due to budget cuts, the CIA has teamed
1: up with her old adversaries to concoct a plot to blow up a small town and blame it on Muslim extremists in order to get more funding from Congress. When the CIA kidnapped Charlie's
0: daughter, she and Mitch must find a way to save the kid and the town. It may be Christmas Eve, but things are really heating up because it's in North America, obviously. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess <laughs> that's something for listeners. You'll probably realise that that was written by Josh, who was North American. Otherwise, that doesn't make any sense for any Australians listening. Or hey, don't discount South Africans, Argentinians, True. Chileans. You know, but all all those who enjoy a warm Christmas. So this film is, as we said earlier, directed by Renny Harlan who also directed Cliffhanger. Uh, yep, um, and Die Hard Two. He was uh, not the king, but he was
1: the, uh, the crown prince of the 80s and 90s action genre, um, hmm. but now mostly does TV and kind of low-budget action. He's not really doing the same calibre movies anymore.
0: Well, he also, well, this film was after Cutthroat Island. It was. So Cutthroat Island, obviously the big film that bombed, but then still got to make this film. I wonder if, I mean, this film wasn't a huge success. But it underperformed. Yeah, so I have a feeling it's sort of the the mid '90s were kind of when his career probably had a bit of a decline, and he didn't get to do as much. He was the biggest filmmaking export from Finland. Uh, yes. he's now been surpassed by the
1: Angry Birds movie. So, You're it's joking. No, that's really? now the biggest
0: Finnish movie ever. Is that because Angry Birds is a Finnish? It's app, Rovio, so it was, Rovio Entertainment is Finnish. I'm so sorry, Randy yeah. Harlan. I'm really sorry. I mean, you could say Cutthroat Island kind of finished his career I'm, I'm not even going to linger at the scene of that crime. Speaking of Cutthroat <laughs> Island, though, uh, Gina Davis starring in this as well, and they were married at the time. Yes, um, and as I said before, written by Shane Black, who wrote the Lethal Weapon, at least first Lethal Weapon film, and has character credits on the rest of them.
1: Uh, he also wrote Last Boy Scout and did a
0: rewrite on Last Action Hero. I think we figured out over the last couple of weeks. Josh and I are big Shane Black fans. Yes. Um, Part of the Shane Black Mutual Appreciation Society. Yeah, and watching this film, I could definitely appreciate his, his writing and his input.
1: You can see his hand in it, even though he's not directing the film, but it definitely feels like a Shane Black movie.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and of course, we can't look over Samuel L. Jackson. That man was born to do lines of dialogue, like they gave him in this <laughs> oh movie. Oh my gosh, and and yeah, both him and Gina Davis get some cracker lines in this film, mm. and even some of the supporting cast like uh, Brian Cox as well. I think that's that's probably the biggest strength of this film is it's endlessly quotable.
1: Yeah, and the characters are so strong, but that is a mark of Shane Black's work. Is that? While a lot of other action films don't have as strong character leads and stories that are driven by character, Shane Black's stories are always very heavily driven by character.
0: Yeah, as each character pops up in this film, you get that little repartee that really defines
1: who they are. Mm, And you get a sense of the world outside of the film. I mean, just a a great line is when Samuel L. Jackson bursts in on the John in the bed when he's doing the con about uh, prostitution. That is healthy. And he's like...
0: I actually preferred a different... My favorite line in that was actually a different one. I quite liked when he said... So
1: you're assuming I won't shoot your sorry ass, and everyone knows when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you and i shit. Sure. Great example, though, of Shane Black um, subverting a convention. Yep. And we'll, we'll get into that in filmmaking process, because this is... I want to go through some of the Shane Black kind of tropes that he hits in this movie, but that's another good one. Interesting aside, mm. the John on the bed... Travers from Cliffhanger.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. It's it's an I feel like he he's a very standard actor to put into most action films and probably has done tons of them and I feel like that role was it was kind of like Beneath? Pretty small. Yeah. Was it Beneath the Prostitute? <laughs> um he, he could have been remember. he Never could have been on top I think, yeah, I mean, he could have been either I mean he could have been on bottom they could have they could have done both yeah we don't,
1: we shouldn't judge no. we don't know um, but yeah well and she went on um, the woman who plays Samuel Jackson's sidekick she was the lead actress
0: in CSN New York yes yeah yeah I'm she's, trying to remember her name it's a Greek uh, name Melina Kanakaridis Kanakaridis Melina Kanakaridis oh. um, yes and Rex Lynn. Who is credited as man in bed?
1: Rexlin, yes, plays plays the John who
0: who gets uh, who gets conned. Yeah. I am, um, and I guess maybe the other one, possibly worth pointing out, is Craig Bierko, who plays Tim. Um, you probably, if anything recent, he is the executive producer in the TV show Unreal. If you've been watching that, he's done oh, a lot of TV. Okay, stuff definitely not looking nearly as young or fit. <laughs> Yeah, right, well, okay. Did then. No. Um, but yeah, Gina Davis was a was well, she was a huge star
1: at this time. Yeah. And I right. think it's really interesting. After this Cutthroat Island and this film, I'm not gonna say her career tanks, but she doesn't really do the caliber of films that she had been doing before. She does like three Stuart Little movies after this in a row. Right. And I think she was on TV, she added her own TV show. But mm-hmm. it's interesting that she went from being what I would consider, you know on par with like Julia Roberts as far as like acting clout. And, box and this is because we're post-Thelma and Louise. Like, Well, Thelma and Louise was huge hit. Mm. Yep. Um, she'd won an Academy Award for Accidental Tourist. Right. And League of Their Own was also a popular movie. Of course, yes, yes, with uh, Tom Hanks. And Madonna. <laughs> right. <laughs> Come on, Madonna in her greatest <laughs> acting role.
0: And Rosie O'Donnell before she got her talk show. We seem to like to plot people's careers on on. On bell curves, so I feel like we're on the, the decline of Gina Davis to an extent.
1: Yeah, she doesn't. She never really has the same star power after this film, really. Actually, right.
0: whereas Samuel L. Jackson, he's probably very much on the rise still. Oh. I well, mean, this we, is post post Pop Fiction, yeah. post Die Hard three, mm. but there's definitely more to come. Absolutely, and yeah, still
1: you know pulling out those great lines of dialogue. Just uh, he's so good in this film. Um, I want to just want to touch on Shane Black for one moment. Yes. Um, this film, you can just see how steeped he is in the detective fiction genre and the right. noir. The, the title of the movie is actually an homage to Raymond Chandler, the great detective novelist. Right. The book is called *The Long Goodbye*. Yeah. I and that's the film that plays in the motel room when. Samuel Jackson and Gina Davis are in the Dutch cabins.
0: I definitely felt like there is um, a lot of a bit of crossover between this and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in yeah. in tone. Like yeah, there was even one really interesting parallel with um, Brian Cox's character keeps a gun in his underwear, which is very reminiscent of Val Kilmer's faggot gun in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I think is an, an interesting fixation for Shane to have. It is. He's, he's he wants. <laughs>
1: Firearms to be around men's genitals for some reason. Well, he just he. It, it, it seems to be a device that he
0: likes to go to. Is that well, no one likes to check there.
1: Yeah, I'll give you. I'll give you another one too. Uh, a parallel between this and Nice Guys. So when Trin finds Amnesia Chick's file and says, "Hey, we've got a lead on her," Samuel Jackson immediately goes call her up, get more money off of her, which is exactly what Ryan Gosling's character does in Nice Guys. That's his whole mo is right. to.
0: Milk the client and always say I need a little bit more money now. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, there's a, and actually there's another thing is that all three of these films involve private detectives in some way. Uh, Last Boy Scout does as well, right? So the there are de- definitely uh, things that he likes to go to that are just and obviously to do with how inspired he is by the whole noir genre and just yeah like the detective
1: the the pulp detection fiction genre. I would almost go as far to say that this is as much a Shane Black film as it is a Rennie Harlan film.
0: The action scenes are very much Rennie Harlan. It's exactly what we've come to expect. And yet yeah, the dialogue, as I said, just endlessly quotable, moves along at a really good pace and the character building is 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 really good. And the plot is driven
1: by the character's backstories. Yes. Which is a good way to segue into like what we think worked and what didn't. Because to me... That's one of the things that really works for me is that this film comes completely from the character's backstory and propels the action forward.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah, I definitely, what I, yeah, what I liked the most were all the little moments that each character had. Like uh, Brian Cox's character when we first meet him and he's eating his lunch and his wife... Is that his wife? I thought it was his mother. I don't know, it's basically an older woman (laughs) has a dog on her lap that has been licking its ass for apparently three hours.
1: Well, what's wrong with the dog? It's simple.
0: He's been licking his asshole for the last three straight hours. I submit to you
1: that there is nothing there worth more than an hour's attention. And I should think that whatever he is attempting to dislodge is either gone for good or there to stay.
0: And just those little bits Mm. I loved so much. Um...
1: Because for that moment we see into his world. He's the retired yeah. spook master, and we see into what his world is now.
0: And it's funny because I feel like Brian Cox is always a spook.
1: <laughs> that's own. just his that's just his mo. That dude has been in so many movies. Like, and he's an incredible character actor in the sense that like he could just do all these different voices,
0: and he's infinitely believable in every role. The other thing also is uh, Samuel Jackson's character singing everything. Mm. Put the gun in the left pocket. Nah, 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 nah. Wallet on the right, or whatever. But like that, it's a, you wouldn't see that in in any other films. Like it's it's just unnecessary. Some would consider unnecessary fluff, and it just box film out too much. But it helps to yeah make him a really well rounded character, mm. unlike other sort of sidekicks you see in um, in action films. So I, I yeah, I really enjoyed that because it keeps you in there rather than just waiting for the next set piece. So would you call him a sidekick? I wouldn't, because I mean, this is like. Absolutely, because I see this as that as like a really a buddy movie. Yeah, but uh, it's her story. Okay, yeah, you're right. It I, is. Yeah. yeah, it is very much her story. But I, I, I think they reverse the damsel of distress, damsel in distress role, no, uh, gender reversed it. Especially when he says, "Sam, I'll be waiting for you to come rescue me."
1: Be just a minute.
0: Yeah, he's always second. Feel like he gets kicked out of her car. I mean, but he yeah, does no, have think- he does have a slight
1: arc. I mean, yeah. I, I have a f- my my guess is that some stuff was cut out. Right. But he has a slight arc in the sense that he is after redemption in some sense because right. if, uh, from the scene uh, tracking his character arc from the scene with his kid, where his kid won't accept toys. Another interesting reference to Kiss, Kiss, Bang, oh, Bang, yes. Toys How did I not even
0: click on that? Oh, my God. Um, the, so
1: his son won't accept the toy because his dad is somewhat of a crook. Yep. You know, he did the wrong thing when he was a cop in Atlanta and then moving towards some sort of redemption, you know, where he goes out. Into a situation when Charlie, Charlie's got the rifle scope and yeah. shoot, is shooting the bad guys around him, he basically goes on a suicide mission to help save the kids. So he's trying to redeem himself in that sense. The one thing that, and I then the, fi- was... the final scene. Sorry, did no, no, no. but the final scene when he's on Larry King Live, yeah. and his wife or his ex-wife and child see it and go, "Oh, I mean,
0: it's yeah. kind of implied that like, oh, Dad's a respectable person now because he's on Larry King, even though he talks about how he." Cheats on women. <laughs> that's his that's his opening line on Larry King. One thing that I I wouldn't say I didn't like, but confused me a little is I wasn't a hundred percent on why Samuel L. Jackson's character was linked to Gina Davis I eventually made the link that oh she he was just one of the private detectives that she hired but I thought the implication was is that she'd stopped doing that a couple of years ago the, the reason why he would be still keeping track of that case I didn't feel that clear to me unless the implication is that yeah he was still under her employee
1: yeah it's it's a the link is a little bit tenuous and it's definitely a kind of contrived point that one Eye Jack breaks out of jail and attacks her right at the same time that Samuel L. Mm. Jackson finds the clue that's gonna lead to the next stage in, the, in yeah. the story. That's actually something that very much didn't work for me, and I hate this cliche, which is the guy who's in prison and then sees something on TV and gets so angry that he can break out. Actually, yeah, that's... <laughs> I hate that cliche. And it's like <laughs> it's like, okay, so prior to that, He was in jail, but he could he have broken out? Couldn't he have? But the fact that he gets angry, that's what gives him the somehow magical ability to break out of prison now.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, for something so, it feels like it's something so monumental, which is just uh, put away to two lines of dialogue. Yeah. It's not easy to break out of jail. No. (laughs) And another thing that kind of, look, I understand that it was good for the pacing of the film, but the exposition dump of voiceover at the start in that first scene. I initially didn't appreciate it because I was like, oh well, why not actually tell this in the story? But then before you know it it's 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 over and, and things are happening and you don't really you kind of forget about it. but initially I was like, I knew it was about someone who didn't know their identity but for straight up to, for her to say I was in I was born eight years ago and already it just felt like a really early point to build that drama for me. I thought it would start really slow. And then ramp up, but um, yeah, no, it was a weird start to it um, for me. And again, I'm just not a huge fan of exposition dumps like that. Mm. the the more The more discreet they can be, the more impressed I am. The dream sequence too is um,
1: when she when she gets hit by the car and starts getting her memory back. Yeah, she's on the
0: cliff with the
1: lightning yeah, and the mirror. And that so totally on. reminded me of this porno that my dad used to have. <laughs> Wow, okay There's porno tape where it's like these two people fucking behind In front of a green screen and there's like lightning and shit going in the background There's a lot of questions
0: that We didn't that watch it together, <laughs> we didn't watch the porno together um, Look, I Okay, maybe once I, <laughs> I just didn't expect we'd go from action films <laughs> to pornos quite so quickly <laughs> <laughs> it was just it was just when I was watching that I was like,
1: oh yeah that's like Is that like- because
0: it reminds you of those bad special effects or is it like no, it was just that very the, similar: I just were, these two people were
1: It was like an arty <laughs> kind of porno.:
0: <laughs> Yeah, one of those one of those.: arty ones. <laughs> Going back to the, the, the character building of this film and you know our argument over whether it's a buddy film or Samuel Jackson's a sidekick. Mm. You kind of forget how much we see his backstory at the start of the film, because yeah, then the rest of the story is really driven by. Gina's character and, and what she needs and how he just helps her. Whereas I feel like in other buddy films, there's very much a 50-50, but I feel like the 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 scales kind of really lean her way. Yeah. Once that's once they're together and they're off. No, you're right. That is a good point. I mean, this
1: is this is her story. Yeah. And whatever Mitch Hennessy's arc is, mm. is given relatively minor coverage. Yeah. Whereas you're right. Like on a lot of other Buddy films. It's about how the two characters affect each other.
0: Yeah, which to a certain extent, their their stories do they do affect each other in that way. But yeah, ultimately, I feel like his his story of redemption. It's it's good that it's, that it's there, but didn't really matter to me that much. I was happy for him to just be there and be the the comic relief. But yeah, wasn't really interested in his story of redemption. Like, why did he steal the bonds? Like, well, and this
1: actually goes further to making your point that he is. Uh, a side character he's not yeah. it's not as much of a buddy film as maybe I originally thought cuz you're
0: right like why does he st- why is he corrupt he just says that he always makes mistakes yeah but then again and you could you could always say the same for charlie is that why is she such a ruthless killer yet there is this side to her that True. is more more caring and and empathetic than how she was in the past. And that is that is another thing that, to me, we don't get enough of
1: that dilemma within her as to who is she going to be. Is she going to be Sam Kane or is she going to be Charlie Baltimore? You know, is she going to yeah. be the mother? Is she going to be the assassin? When her daughter Caitlin gets kidnapped, mm-hmm. it's just immediately towards, we got to save the kid. Yeah, I don't see enough of that internal struggle of, should I, you know, go back to my old life, you know, that does not include the kid or should I, you know, fight for my new life.
0: Yeah, we like the 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 transformation into Charlie's is is that's done pretty well. It's like she's basically tortured into becoming, you know, someone something she hasn't been since she suffered from amnesia. And she has like the Rambo transformation, like the Rambo
1: <laughs> moment. Uh, sexist, by the way. It's all her changing her cosmetic appearance.
0: Yes, no, that, that's a, that is a fair point, actually. But it does help visually. I think I think that it does help for there to be some kind of visual change. But as you said, like that is the only change, really. Otherwise, yeah, what's the point? Well, you
1: have it on a lot of those movies, you know, where there's the scene where he's like straps on the gun, sticks the knife in the holder, you know, yep. tightens the bandana. You know, puts on uh, the war paint, waxes his mustache. You know, <laughs> oh, no, wait. Uh, that's the only transformation that she goes through. And then she's instantly
0: this other person. And Samuel Jackson's like, whoa, who are you? This film is definitely, it, it, it's good, but you know, there's a reason why it's not as awesome as Lethal Weapon or Die Hard. It doesn't really it it doesn't tip the scales, of no. does it?
1: And that's, that's what I found interesting watching this. and I'm like, this is a good movie, but it's not a great movie. No. And there's a lot of things that put this ahead of the pack
0: in a lot of ways, but nothing that really truly makes it great. Yeah. And we start looking at the motivations of the bad guys. That's also, I feel like when it really falls off the rails a bit, it's like the CIA want more money. Yeah, but- why?
1: Well, this is let's this is interesting because this is actually the cultural context of the piece right. that possibly okay. you don't <laughs> nice. you don't pick up on as much. So this is the period in the nineties
0: mm.
1: when it's the post-Cold War. So the reason it's given why Charlene is assassinated is she's this kind of unhinged cynical, you know, killer yep. who is a relic of the Cold War that they don't need anymore. So they bump her off. Right. And Timothy and one Eye Jack are responsible for,
0: you know, to kill her, but they actually don't. She, you know, falls in the ocean and gets amnesia. So is it worth pointing out at that point that, so at around that point, the CIA have recruited Timothy and One-Eyed Jack to get rid of it? Or is it just because Timothy and One-Eyed Jack were people that she was trying to bump off and they bumped her off instead? The CIA hires them. That's the
1: conceit, is that Mm. the CIA has to because of budget cuts, the CIA has to get into bed with the old criminals. So, like, Daedalus is a weapons smuggler. Yeah, yeah. David Morse's character.
0: They're basically, they're hiring other people because they have budget cuts because they need to get rid of someone else. Well, yeah, and this is where it gets a little bit confusing. The plot is
1: a little bit confusing. But what I understood is that Charlene's bumped off as a CIA employee... Right. And so but they're not necessarily hiring Daedalus and Timothy on a full time basis. They're just
0: contracting people. Right. They're
1: contracting people or they are looking the other way for their gun running, smuggling op- operations in lieu of doing work like yeah. you know, what well what Project Honeymoon is blowing up a small
0: town and blaming Which, it on It's like, oh yeah, we'll just blame it on the Muslims. And
1: I don't think you could do the, this film again in the same way. I don't think you could use oh, the same all. conceit of, you know, blame the Arab terrorist. Well, like it just, I feel like this film's too lighthearted for that to be <laughs> at the centre of it. Yeah, that's a good point. And, yeah, yeah. Muslims are at some point uh, good at, what's another example, um, Peacemaker is
0: one. Right. Um, I always think of True Lies. That's, that's that's a film that I've seen a lot and that, that has a very stereotypical Arab character as the as the villain.
1: Um, trying to think of um, oh the Nicolas Cage movie uh, Snake Eyes, right? Also, um, they it's a similar plot point. They blame
0: the the problems on uh, an Arab terrorist, but it's it's actually a false flag, as in well, so this that's, movie. That's interesting that 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 pops up a couple of times. That yeah, it, it's it's some it's an American blaming it on who everyone else would expect. Mm. Um, And I think that's probably used to try and make it feel, make the stakes a little bit higher to a certain extent because that really plays with sense of, you know, know, trusting the government or whatever. It's like, oh, no, they could actually be super corrupt and have some weird reason to kill hundreds of people but make it look like it wasn't them at all for their own reasons.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's pretty, yeah, pretty frightening. That's where the whole post-Cold War era... Um, idea kicks in is yeah. that, so the Russians are no longer the stand-in bad guy or communism or whatever are no longer the stand-in bad guy. The wall has come down. Communism is no longer the threat. We can't, those people can't be the automatic bad guys. And so there's an internal unease with America as a trying to find who is the new bad guy, the new stand-in bad guy for the communists or some sort of offshoot of that. So who's going to be the stand-in evil person,
0: you know, Arab extremists, um, sometimes it's the Chinese. That seems like a really dangerous problem to have, that... A country is struggling to know who they're supposed to hate next. Like- but,
1: that, but that's the thing. That's where this film sits in the in the zeitgeist. Because what you know, the wall came down. Yeah. It wasn't just geopolitics
0: that was affected. It was no. Hollywood as well. <laughs> like this had ramifications and everything. Right, yes And so that's why this film doesn't have very strong villains Is because of the Berlin Wall coming down But it's a grey area, that's what I'm <laughs> yeah, saying right. So yeah, the yeah.
1: CIA so the CIA, goes from being automatically the good guy To now the CIA is in this murky relationship with weapons dealers Right. And they are now kind of bad but kind of good And Charlie's trying to figure out mm, Should I be the school teacher? Do I want to go back to this world of being an assassin? Mm. It's all steeped in this grey area which is very noirish as well. Yeah, for tip, sure. Which is a Shane Black thing. But what I'm saying is, like, even the Bond franchise. When the Bond franchise picks back up in 1995, when with, uh, Brosnan and Goldeneye. Yeah, mm. that is a major element of the Bond films. Actually, well, throughout the entire Pierce Brosnan
0: over Oeuvre. 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 The, yeah,
1: the, the entire Pierce Brosnan oeuvre of Bond films really deals with this. As in, we don't have the black and white, you know, Spectre, you know, the evil corporation, you know, the right. evil masterminds, Russia, the evil monolithic state. You know, it's all become very murky and gray as to who is the bad guy, and that's what the Bond franchise deals with a lot in this era. And yeah. it's this film is always is also set perfectly
0: in that cultural side That's that's fascinating. I wouldn't have even thought of something like that to really have much of an impact. I mean it's it is obvious that yeah there was a period where, you know, Russians were evil in film and then it was Muslims and there's this element there
1: where it's like the the world is trying to find its feet again as to who the enemy is. And as a result of the Cold War ending, the CIA's budget has been cut. And that's the line that the president said.
0: You dump a mess like this in my lap and then you come whining to me and say, where is our funding? Well, I'll tell you where it is. Can you say health care? Yeah, he, I think, yeah, he makes that comment and then and then a bit later in the film there's also a jab from the president of it all, at least where as to where the money is going. But, yeah, sort of that motivation there and just Tim just being so damn evil, it just kind of, uh, yeah, it, it didn't really do much for me. And actually, yeah, Tim's character in, in general, he had some great dialogue but... Yeah, it's just, it's again that thing of characters just being evil for the sake of being evil. And I feel like that was maybe a trope, that's just in the 80s and 90s, that is just a trope. It's like you just assumed that whoever the film told you was the bad guy, they had their reasons and it didn't really matter. Whereas I feel like now there's always a bit of a grey area there. Mm. Um, but this, yeah, the, these villains don't have that. We've moved into a more grey
1: area as terms of like who's good and who's bad. yeah. And I think that really starts in this post Cold War era. Right. It's like, is Charlie a good person or a bad person? You know, the uh, Gina Davis's. Yeah, because she's working for the
0: government, but she just likes to kill people.
1: Yeah, she's. Well, she's kind of unhinged, like in a sense. Like, yeah, for sure. She's drinking and
0: driving. (laughs) Like, (laughs) (laughs) that. And that's an interesting thread that kind of, uh, not even that, but also like drinking and smoking and how that is like. Uh, addressed often in the film, so like her boyfriend at the start makes that gag about not drinking and smoking. And then turns out he is. She tells off the kid for trying to steal smokes, which then comes back around when she comes back mm. and then has a drag of his cigarette and makes him with his pants.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, it's just funny how that how that great great it. insert work there, Rennie <laughs> That was actually one of the most convincing pants wedding scenes I think I've ever seen. Yeah. You've seen a few. <laughs> I feel like it's, it's Up close. <laughs> not that close. Oh, okay. It's not a POV shot, is it? No. Oh, okay. But it was quite visceral, that shot of yeah. the, like the kid pissing his pants. Like, wow, that actually yeah, it looks like he did do that in that moment. Maybe apartment. he did. Like Maybe yeah. he's method. Like maybe he's a method
1: actor. <laughs> a method ten year old. Yeah. Um one other thing I do want to mention about the cultural context of this film, is that when this spec script sold, it was the highest ever recorded money amount for a spec script.
0: At this, at that time? At the time. Right. It was sold for $4 million. That's a lot of money for 80 pages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's actually interesting because we don't really, one of the things that's uh, Hollywood is criticised for is there aren't a lot of original ideas, at least in amongst our sort of blockbuster big films. Um, a lot of peop, a lot of studios are buying franchises, whether they be books or comic books, um, and then turning those into film franchises, whereas something like this, which is, a, yeah, a script that a writer has written and then a studio is bought to make, you don't really see that very much. It's not done as
1: much. I mean, this is, and in some ways this film sounded the death knell for spec scripts because the sale of a spec script for $4 million was seen as obscene. It's not necessarily that this movie was the you know, catastrophic end of the spec script market, but it started a decline in spec script sales. People well, would have overvalued them. Exactly. So the, the spec script market had heated up too much. Another example is Joe Esterhaus, uh, whose spec script for Basic Instinct sold for $3 million. Right. Um, a Brian Hagelin script called Ticking Man, which sold for $2 million, which was never produced. Yeah, right, okay. But had Bruce Willis attached for many years. So there was a lot of money being spent- On writers. On writers. Yeah. And the specs market had really been heating up to the point where the bidding wars between studios were going up and up and up and up and up Mm -hmm. to the point where- Studios yeah the, 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 the also the model the funding model for how films were made changed because of the declining um, VHS and DVD market and the
0: internet as well well yeah that well yeah by the new millennium and sort of later on sure um, but yeah no it just sounds like that the financial model became unsustainable and they had to change things especially when you're paying writers more than you ever have before. And they're probably some of the most underpaid <laughs> sort of creatives in the filmmaking process. Well, it,
1: and this is a, there was a very brief period and Shane Black definitely, you know, was the kind of effante terrible of this, you know, where these certain select group of writers were getting huge paydays for script sales. And right. They were getting uh, Joe Hesterhaus, Brian Hagelin, and a few other people, and it was sort of born out of the 1988 writer strike when a lot of writers had time on their hands and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and so yeah. the market was flooded by spec scripts. The other reason <laughs> After why, <the> strike. yeah, <laughs> but the other reason why the spec script market was able to heat up was because it was in the days pre-internet and pre-email, so no yeah. scripts could be emailed. Executives had to drive to a place, to a location at the talent agency, read the script kind of under lock and key and then leave. And then there was no way that, you know, when, if you, in
0: the old days you you could steal a script, essentially, it was a lot harder to, for them to just, yeah, be plagiarized or or something like that. But it's, but I think this is a really interesting
1: period in, in the, especially in the early nineties when a lot of original materials being produced yeah, and a lot of original ideas are being produced and not to say that, you know, film franchises are not based on original ideas, but the movement out of that definitely takes place after this film. And in some ways this movie sounds the death knell for that because it was a $4 million script sale and the movie underperformed at the box office.
0: Yeah right. It's it's interesting because yeah it's it's a film that hasn't left a huge impact. Like I don't think no many people would really know of this film even though it's it was unique in that it yeah an action film with a female lead um and yeah an actress who as we said before was kind of at the height of her powers or at mm. least starting on the decline. But um I think Cutthroat Island started the decline. Yeah. Well, yeah, is part of that sort and- of drop.
1: I wonder if Cutthroat Island the because it was a well publicized failure
0: yeah if that did not also contribute to this movie failing as well because again it was Renny Harlan and Gina Davis under the year after like it actually wasn't it's quite soon that you know the these films coming out though it's almost it's almost as if they just they film one and then the other straight off the back of each other I wouldn't um, be surprised yeah well because I don't think this film probably would have been made if it was any longer than that
1: yeah. Well, their marriage <laughs> didn't last much longer. Than- <laughs> no,
0: um, so um, yeah, it's just interesting to see that this how this film is actually kind of quite important in in Hollywood sense. That um, yeah, it affected the the way films are made to a certain extent.
1: Look, and I think it's an example of. I think this film has been set as an example of why the spec script market cooled. I don't think it is the reason. I think there was a lot of reasons leading up to this point that the spec script market begins to cool. I, th- I But I think this film is a convenient
0: scapegoat for that.
1: So, Mr. Cafasso, tell us about the filmmaking
0: process. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, as, as we've pointed out before, this looks like any other Rennie Harlan film. Um, I do think the, yeah, the dream sequences were a bit out of left field for me. I didn't really expect them. I don't think they were necessary probably. But, yeah, like this film moves quickly. That, that first 45 minutes, I don't think there's a scene that is longer than three minutes in, in yeah, that. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it moves really quickly. Runtime yeah, time of about two hours? Yeah, like we get all of those characters and and enough dialogue from each of them to really develop them. Yeah, like there wasn't much that... Stood out for me overly with the filmmaking. Like I, some of it was a bit heavy-handed. I feel like, especially we spoke about before the transition from her become going from Sam to Charlie, and and then back again. I like that though. I mean, I look. I, I think there are definitely some kind of
1: you know feminist problems with that. Yes, <laughs> but and it's like that you know that that her physical transformation is what signifies a change on her inside as well. Mm. Um, but. I get from a filmmaking point of view, you have to you have to make a statement that like she's a different person now.
0: This is yeah. her other this is her other persona. You need to see that other and, persona. And come out. And that's what I think it was. It was it's an easy way to show that change. And and in the dream sequences, it kind of works well because you know she's got her brown hair looking into the mirror. Actually, this wasn't even a dream sequence. This is in one of the hotels they stayed at. And that was a dream sequence though. I mean, was, was it? Yeah, she's fantasizing. Either it's, way, yeah. And, yeah, the woman in the mirror is her with the blonde hair and how she was beforehand. Like, that, as a visual cue, that's... It's, it's a lot more obvious for the audience rather than... If so that's was, too heavy-handed to you? Um, no, no, no. I think overall it was some of the transition points. Like, her all of a sudden saying to her daughter at the ice skating rink...
1: Stop being a little baby and get up.
0: I can't Anymore, my wrist
1: hurts. Oof. Life is pain. Get used to it.
0: Her her demeanour like really changes. It was it was it it did feel a little bit strange. I think what what I'm saying is is that the visual change of her character helps for those moments where we are showing sort of the good sight the her now and how she was before like i think that that helps visually rather than she would just have what a different facial expression if the uh, rather than having the different the the blonde hair in the mirror mm. i think that that's definitely it it helps to communicate that message. Well, yeah, her whole style of dress changes.
1: Instead of wearing kind of loose fitting, baggy dresses and sweaters and stuff, she goes to wearing a very
0: sleek jogging suit, almost. Yeah, I I did have a problem with the fact that they referred to her suburban side as as frumpy and just to the point of like she had a massive ass, which she just didn't see. Like I just didn't it didn't that didn't make sense for me at all. Yeah, it's, it's, it's more to refer to the fact that she sort of was was more, I guess, subdued and not as i don't know i guess not as out there as as she is um as the assassin
1: yeah and i suppose the the inciting incident which which leads Sam Kane to transition into Charlie Baltimore is the accident on the road with a deer. Yeah. So she's thrown clear of the car, which I don't know why she didn't die in that, but... Yeah, there's a couple
0: of issues there's a, there's there. There's a
1: little, there's a few little movie things like that, like she's thrown clear through the windshield
0: and it snaps the deer's neck. And also the animatronic deer on the hood of the car, don't know if that needed to be... <laughs> Like, you don't need to show the deer writhing on the hood of the car while they're cruising along and before they hit the tree just to establish... But is that there so that we establish that the deer is still alive and then she snaps its neck? Like, that's. I think that's it. The the deer just could have stirred, like, in the snow, which it did anyway. Yeah. Like, I feel like there's probably... Yeah. I Obviously, that was the best way they could have done something like that in the mid-'90s, but it just it didn't need... It didn't work for you. No. But see, to me, like... It's an interesting. It's interesting that
1: the, the transition is slow. Like you start to see cracks in her personality. You know, yes. she swears at her daughter at the ice skating rink. Mm. Um, she's gets the use of you know the knife and you know chops the that's vegetables. What really chefs fast. do? Yeah, it's what chefs do. You know, <laughs> like little bits of her memory. She gets coming more aggressive. Yeah, and like it's every piece of trauma you know awakens something within her. Yeah, which is interesting. I mean, I guess you. How do you do a thing like that like because it, it was it's either you'd show it incrementally or you show one big change. Yeah, yeah. And so what they've done here, what they've elected to do here is have little incremental bits of the Charlie Baltimore persona showing through, and then and ultimately the torture sequence
0: that ultimately transforms it. Yeah, yeah,
1: and that that's what then she is only Charlie Baltimore after that.
0: Yeah. I um... How did you feel about the action sequences in general, though? Um, pretty good. Like I think they do have that Shane Black thing of they move the story forward. They aren't there just for the sake of it. Yeah. Well, that's true. It. Like the the shootout at the at the bus station. That's motivated by Gina Davis needing to meet Brian Cox. Yeah, exactly. Know, and then, old handler. And then of course you know the the CIA have been tapping Brian Cox's phone because they knew that eventually she would try and contact him. Like that. Mm. Yeah. That all kind of. It, it moved along well. Um, and then, of course, when she meets up with her, her fiancé, who she had an engagement with. Um, Who's actually her target. <laughs> well, yeah, that, it was a really quick line from from Brian in the car. He was just like, oh, yeah, that's actually just agency speak for she's going to kill him. Like, that's who that is. And see, to me, that's a good example of using the character and using the backstory
1: to tell the story. Yeah. Um, so, we should go through the Shane Black trademarks that this movie has. Yep. Yeah, so, it hits a lot of them. So, I'll list them all. I'll, I'll give you my list. Yep. Yeah. So, Christmas movie set at Christmas. Yes. Um, mismatched duo as protagonists. Although yes. This is the convention is played with a little bit because it's a yeah. man and a woman. Uh, sharp dialogue. A plot involving a conspiracy. Yep. Yeah. Uh, narration at the beginning of the film. Um oh, this film, Kiss Kiss, Bang Bang, yeah. and Nice Guys all feature narration at the beginning. Right, right. I don't know, does Iron Man 3? I, I was about it. to say I need to rewatch Iron Man 3, I think. And Iron Because Iron Man 3 is set at Christmas, isn't it? Oh god, you're really testing me now. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, right. Um shelving and reintegration of ideas. So mm-hmm. the uh smoking by the kid who pees his pants at the end. Oh, yeah. Um and the scene on the ice rink when Gina Davis shakes her daughter and says, "You know, life is pain." You know, <laughs> and it's like if it turns out her wrist is broke. You know, that comes back at the end when the daughter is trying to rouse Gina yeah. Davis.
0: Yeah, actually, actually, I'd totally forgotten about that.
1: There's a lot of this, but there's a that's a real common thing is the reintegration of lots of little ideas like that. And let's not forget the uh, gun in underwear. Got an underway. I, I missed that one. I didn't I didn't pick up on that one. Uh but playing with conventions as well. um and the Samuel L. Jackson line of an assumption is a asset of you and umption. You yeah. Know? Subverting those thing uh things of you know that we would typically, you know, just accept in a movie, you know, like Ryan Gosling punching through a <laughs> glass oh, pane so in good. Nice that's... Guys and then cutting his wrist really badly or Robert down. We should
0: just review the Nice Guys, shouldn't we? <laughs> or Kiss Kiss
1: Bang Bang for that matter. But, but, this, but this is... Inter- but this is, to me, this doesn't depreciate... And this is, I think, this is the power of Shane Black is it doesn't depreciate my enjoyment of
0: those films yep. that he reuses ideas. And I think the... What's most successful in action films, um, and I don't know if we've spoken about this before, is the underdog element, is that... <laughs> The person that you're rooting for needs to be overcoming totally, like almost impossible odds, and showing that they are not perfect. And it's something that I think the who best uses that is, is a Jackie Chan fight scene is always an amazing example of that. Is he's always got, he's always underhanded in some way. And a lot of uh, Shane Black's characters, you see that they're not perfect. They yeah fail at stuff. They often will. I guess yeah. The parallel between Mitch Hennessy's character and Robert Downey Jr.'s character in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is that, as we said, they are constant failures. Um, well,
1: Riggs um, in Lethal Weapon. So Riggs I have, is about I <laughs> I seen Oh, you haven't. Before, oh. Me, remember the purpose of this podcast. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not. Uh, I'm not giving away an no. essential element of the plot. Riggs yeah, is yeah. about to commit
0: suicide in the like the opening scene. I think I've uh, seen like the first ten minutes of it yeah and so Reeks is Mel Gibson's character yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah I do he's, remember he's that suicidal part. yeah yeah and so, so that's the thing he's labeled as like this crazy dude in yeah the, in the department
1: he's unhinged <laughs> yeah, yeah so I mean like that's yeah a protagonist who's deeply troubled Bruce Willis's character in Last Boy Scout as well right another good example of deeply troubled character yeah
0: and that's that's yeah sort of seems to be the formula that that makes these yeah really interesting and multi-dimensional action films. That yeah you you don't obviously don't see many of them because not everyone's doing it the way he does. Mm. So here's just an another interesting thing about Shane Black is while you and I both kind of wax fantastic
1: about how good he is. Yeah, I wonder is he held in such high esteem?
0: You know among other people. Well, that's huge thing. Is it apart from Lethal Weapon, like none of his. Other films have been absolute runaway successes. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang has a little bit more than a cult following. Uh, well, Iron Man 3 it was huge. But Yeah, yeah but is Iron that the Man franchise? 3 is, yeah. is a Marvel film. And, and like, The Nice Guys is fine, but it hasn't really left a huge impression. It was not a hit either. Yeah. Um, yeah, to the point where I think I remember reading someone sort of paying out on Ryan Gosling and saying, like, he just plays the same character in every film, including Nice Guys, which is a piece of garbage. Oh. <laughs> it's like. Oh, well. Have home. you seen? He obviously hasn't seen the notebook. Hello.
1: <laughs> okay, sir. So. Yep. You've now seen two Rennie Harlan films. I have. How did the final action sequence of this movie compare to the
0: final action sequence of Cliffhanger? Uh, okay. The fact that the kid goes in the compartment on the truck is a bit contrived, but. That, I, I'll, I will. I will. Hand you that one yeah. gladly. That but I also had what? that criticism. It didn't. It didn't. I wasn't as disappointed by it as with Cliffhanger. This was def- much better. Um, yeah. No. The one thing that I did think about is that I don't think I've seen many Americans rush to the Canadian border like that since Trump got elected. <laughs> Thank you. I'm here all week. Um, but. Yeah no, I th- I felt like that was it was pretty good. It was the only the only thing. I, was, I thought it was re- the final action sequence was really good. Yeah, I thought you I thought you were testing me then. It was, but yeah no, I actually I it, there's nothing super stood out to me apart from when the kid got in the truck. But then that it wasn't it just it wasn't nearly as big a deal as as all the crap that happened at the end of cliffhanger. Yeah,
1: they do cover their ass though in Long Kiss Goodnight because um, Charlie shouts to her daughter. Hide, sweetheart, hide. Yeah. but
0: I mean, it's very much, I mean, it's very contrived that she, the one place she goes to hide is, is the nuclear, <laughs> is yeah, the is huge the chemical bomb. Weapon. Um, but yeah, then, but then also the whole thing of, of obviously Charlie isn't dead when her daughter runs back to her, but she essentially revives her by like, by berating her like she was when she was on the ice skating rink. That was, I, I got to say, I didn't really believe in that moment. Okay. I, I,
1: because I, I felt as, look, as far as like learning from your mistakes, <laughs> I yeah. thought Long Kiss Goodnight did a really good job of keeping the action going without it being super contrived. Just, oh, yeah. Just like to the point where I'm like, you know, at the end of
0: Cliffhanger, I just checked out. I was like, whatever. Just, well, I mean, I think maybe that part of that problem is that we're comparing a film about rock climbing and then a film about, like an assassin. Right, is. okay. where So the action is... That was the thing with Cliffhanger is that you needed a reason for the action to exist, whereas when you're talking about people who their job is to kill other people, the action is kind of part of the narrative in that sense. Um, I did like... the I love the, the final shot of, of Gina killing
1: Timothy when she... Cuts the line mm. as the, the the burning body of a man yeah. is hanging there with his machine gun out. And as she she cuts the weight, and as the line goes up, she grabs his machine gun yeah. from his burning from his burning, <laughs> burning corpse, corpse,
0: fires at Timothy, kills him. Yeah, when she shut up the helicopter and the fire started, but that was only it was only like for five seconds. You kind of go oh is that helicopter going to blow up? And then you, it kind of goes away and moves on to something else. And then it comes back to that burning body. Like that was. I yeah, like that, that. She slides up. No, grabs, that, the, that moment was great. Because and blasts the, him. And then as she slides down, breaks all the Christmas lights. Yeah, that down. was cool. Her sliding down the, the Christmas lights. But like that, her pulling that gun, I that was very reminiscent of when she was attached to the water wheel, grabs a gun from Brian Cox's body and and comes up and shoots all the guys. Like it wasn't contrived because we kind of, we'd seen that moment already. Like we know that that's what she is capable of. And that was that was the only way to get out of that situation. She didn't have a gun. Mm. Um, I yeah, liked it. it. All, it, didn't, it that def didn't feel contrived at all. That felt like that's what she would do. She's a bloody CIA assassin. She's amazing at what she does. Um, that's not outside of her scope. How the um, metal
1: from the gun didn't, Scalded her hand. We don't know really how sure. long it was burning
0: for, and it's hard you to know to, how yeah. hot the gun was. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to him. <laughs> I don't know. I don't care. It was, I the sequence was so cool. I was just like, whatever. You yeah, know, I think
1: I think if you if you she's got of, third degree hands on her third degree burns on her hands now. She's never going to caress she, her child's she, face she, with that disfigured, she, munted paw of
0: hers, <laughs> 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 because the metal has scalded her skin. I think you're, if you're arguing about the temperature of metal from a burning body, you are dissecting an act. you're giving an action film way too much credit. True. And also Samuel L. Jackson survives being blown
1: out of a third-story window through the sign yeah. into the tree.
0: <laughs> I- he survives that, so we can, we can give it a pass. But actually that's an example of a, a classic villain moment is that they're like, oh, we got to get rid of Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, let's put him in the car that's supposed to be the car bomb. ...or whatever it was... ...because he was in the car with... Yeah, the guy with the that terrorist. Was, the, yeah, the yeah, frozen, frozen terrorist. terrorist. So they're basically implicating him in that... ...but then essentially it means that the sidekick is there... ...to help save the day... ...which, yeah... ...again, his revival is reminiscent of... ...Charlie's revival at the end of the film with her daughter... It's ...it seems a little too convenient... ...but because it was Samuel L Jackson... ...and because I don't know anyone who wouldn't have loved... ...his character by the end of it... ...because of the dialogue that he had... I was happy to see him come back. You almost miss him at a certain point. The film, the film was lacking in Sammy Jackson and then he brought, they brought him back from the dead and you're kind of like, yes, Samuel Jackson. You won him. Yeah, he saves the day. You won him there. Yeah. So there was, this film did enough and was, didn't take itself too seriously that moments like that you're happy with because it, it makes the film exciting again. Well, not again, but keeps it exciting. So, all right, look, I feel like we have gone in and out of this film at every angle and we have given Shane Black an epic blowjob. Ultimately, what do you think of this film?
1: I like it and I also see that it is, in his canon, it's definitely not risen that high, I Mm. think because of the fact that it was sort of a box office disappointment at the time. Yeah, it it hasn't lasted, it hasn't stood the test of time. Well, let me put it this way. I think the film stands the test of time well and it doesn't date that badly, but it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't leave as much of a legacy as some of his other movies maybe have.
0: Yeah, I don't think it, it doesn't leave a lasting impression. It's definitely one of those films that you you probably would go to see the cinemas, but then you know, and talk about it the next day and then forget about it a week after. It, mm. But it it, it it serves its purpose relatively well. Um, I definitely enjoyed it and can see why my 10-year-old mates um, would have loved the shit out of this film because I reckon they watched it multiple times. They were genuinely like, this is so cool, it's so violent, it's amazing and it's funny and there's a lot of swearing and I was like, I can't wait to see this film. Um so, yeah, it definitely lived up to those expectations and was clever enough that I didn't, uh, yeah, that I, that, I, that I enjoyed the ride.
1: Yeah. yeah. I find it sitting in this really weird place, whereas in a lot of ways, I can't really fault it that much. But at the same time, I'm like, it's a good but not great movie. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't, yeah, we've, we've arrived at this kind of odd place where there's a lot of elements we like, but it doesn't lead to an overall, like, it doesn't, nothing pushes it over the edge. It's no. not a pulp fiction. You know, it's never going to be, it's never going to be transcendent. No. It's never going to transcend.
0: No. Um, and for me, I think I would give it a four out of seven furiously diced tomatoes. Oh, good one.
1: I was going to give it seven out of ten Christmas crackers. <laughs> Lovely. Beautiful.
0: I need a better one. Ten, seven, out t- Christmas crackers is lame. Because I was trying to think of something else that's iconic in no, the you, film. No, that's
1: that was really good. Yeah, there is nothing iconic. That's that's exactly the <laughs> al- <laughs> Yeah, no. This is ex- this is. I think we've just we, <laughs> in our stupidity, we've stumbled upon it. In the very last thing we're gonna say about this movie is that there's nothing iconic about this movie.
0: Yeah, like
1: that's what it is. Yeah, it will stand as a good action movie, but because there's nothing iconic about
0: it, which is a shame because it's like Gina Davis in this cool two toned role.
1: Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know.
0: I think we've cracked it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) We've broken the spine. (laughs) And this has been Too Old for This Shit. Thanks
0: for listening. See you next time.
1: And just before we go, we, well, you know, we got to do it. We got to plug social media.
0: Like us on Facebook at TOFTS Podcast and follow us on Twitter at TOFTS Podcast to stay up to date and send us any movie review suggestions. Make sure you also subscribe on your podcasting app of choice and leave us a review. It helps. It really does.
1: I tell you, if your friend had a box of tissues, he needs to watch the notebook. Never, and if you subscribe
0: now, you can listen to Josh's podcast, which is I Love Ryan Gosling. Yeah, it's a new podcast. Uh, <laughs> there's gotta be one that already exists. So oh, I think I'm sure get, it does. Behind the <laughs> <of that>. <laughs> <laughs> Whole
1: podcast about Ryan Gosling every single week. <laughs> all gosling all the time. They could even go back and watch like the episodes of Young Hercules that he started yeah, as a yeah. child actor. It was filmed in New Zealand. Oh, wow. Really? Let's, let's do that fuck this shit. <laughs> let's do a Gosling podcast. Fuck, that's, that's how we're gonna those. be rich, man, let's <laughs> doing a podcast about <laughs> Gosling.